I left for India. I had one objective and one objective only in making this trip. I wanted finally to find enlightenment. Since, as far as I knew, I had never met anyone who possessed this coveted quality, I admitted to myself that I really still don't know, didn't know what it was. Intuitively, I felt it was that very essence of life that had always evaded me, the missing ingredient upon which my happiness depended. My troubled mind desperately needed evidence that enlightenment existed as an attainable possibility for earnest seekers. To me, it represented life's ultimate secret. If I could attain it myself, I felt I would finally understand the nature of God, which was still totally unknown to me. Interesting. I had thought about God since childhood, but had had no real experience of Him through my perfunctory religious training. Perfunctory religious training for my bar mitzvah or afterwards. Being only a vague concept, to me, I never turned to God in my need. The more I read about spiritual matters, however, the more, the more I read about spiritual matters, however, the more I wanted to experience God as a reality. I looked, as, I looked at India as my last hope. To accomplish this, and in planning the journey, I scintillated. scintillated, scintillated. I scintillated with the excitement about meeting the masters of life's real magic, the gurus who would transmute. My experience of myself into that of a constantly glowing being. In February 1973, shortly after I arrived in India, I heard rumors that there was a man not far from Bombay who possessed all the qualities of God. It was reported that uh, they performed miracles and personified the enlightenment I, th- I sought. He was definitely a master, as a holy man of the highest development are called in the East. Rumor had it that it had the power to grant wishes and fulfill secret yearnings if the seeker was pure heart. I learned that this God-man's name was Muktananda, which means one who lives in freedom and bliss.
Bombay was beastly hot. Huh. The trip to the place I was told I would find Muktananda required connections between several buses and trains. But before journeying into the suburbs of Bombay, I decided to pursue another rumor. I was told that in the heart of the city itself dwelt Mahatabananda, one of the men with whom Hilda had studied. He was 171 years old, I heard, yet still retained the physical qualities of a man not yet 60. Since I felt compelled on my pilgrimage to uncover each secret and mystery, despite the brutalizing heat and the overwhelming stench, Of land so poor that people lived and died on the streets. I resolved to seek the ancient yogi who possessed knowledge of perpetual youth. Navigation through the alien city was torture, but I was determined. The crush of people was awesome. May. Maimed, maimed babies wailed on doorsteps. Leapers plagued every tourist for a rupee. Lepers, I was mortified. How could I be surrounded by lepers? Somehow I eventually arrived. At the address I sought. Without hesitation, I pounded the portal that stood between me and the object of my traumatic search. A pleasant Indian fellow of approximately the same age as myself opened the door and inquired about the purpose of my visit. When I told him, he said simply, Oh, I'm so sorry. Yogi has just left his body only days ago. Left his body? I asked incredulously. You mean he's dead? Yes, came the reply. Is it true he was 171 years old? I asked. Oh, yes, yes, very true. With all his teeth. Yogi was a master soul, the young man said. I was momentarily inclined to ask if I could come in to speak at length with the fellow, since I had come with so many questions. But after brief consideration, instead I apologized for my intrusion and left. After all, I hadn't come all the way to India to chat about what may have very well be, been a myth. Since I still had my childhood habit of taking everything that happened on earth extremely personally, I actually became indig indignant, indignant that 
Mahatabananda would do this to me, and it it undermined my belief in his powers. If he had been as great as I had heard, why didn't he wait to see me before he died? The discomfort of enduring the intense heat and foul odors was nothing compared to the ache of my disappointment. As soon as I could, I boarded the train that would take me to Muktananda. Feces, vomit, and urine filled the car with a disgusting smell. I tried to escape into the book I had brought an explanation of Einstein's theory of relativity for the layman. What impressed me deeply was Einstein saying that he had received his insights by making a leap of the imagination. Although I always had had a vivid imagination, I had considered the imagination to be a limited tool. After discovering metaphysics, however, imagination began to take on a new scope for me. Reading about Einstein, I was delighted to discover his own respect for the, for the ability of imagination to go beyond the beyond. Even more powerfully than warp drive or a jump into hyperspace, since imagination requires no movement at all, Einstein's leap, as I understood it, was simply a matter of being there. The more I read about physics, the more my reality became metaphysical. I was no longer seeing things as divided into two categories, energy and matter. I was becoming convinced that matter did not exist in the way I thought it did. There was only energy in different densities and forms. Every atom was a bundle of energy that was all. Many of these atoms taken together may resemble a solid object, but they are still just energy moving at a very slow speed. The mushroom cloud over Hiroshima became a dark reminder to me that the energy contained in a small bundle of matter can recognize with such force that it can destroy an entire city in the process. <clears throat> I began to feel intuitively that everything was connected, or that each thing that appeared to be different only did so because it was of a different density of some all-pervasive all unifying energy. I could no longer regard matter as a solid island in, a, in an ocean of energy, for it was the same as the energy that surrounded, surrounded it, like icebergs floating in the Arctic Sea. This suggested a further implication to me, since as we human beings know for a fact that we process intelligence, it sees that the energy field of which we are all a part 
must be intelligent as well. Although each individual in a dream has an existence separate from each of the other characters in the in the dream, no one in a dream exists outside of outside the mind of the dreamer. Hmm. Interesting. Although each individual in a dream has an existence separate from each of the other characters in the dream, no one in the dream exists outside the mind of the dreamer. The character's reality is relative to the mind of the dreamer. None of the character is created or destroyed. None is born, none, is, none dies, or are simply projected by and absorbed within one mind. Using this as an, as an analogy for human ex existence, I began to think of my mind and the minds of everyone I knew as individual minds and also as existing with the mind of God. I began to think of my mind and the minds of everyone I knew as individual minds and also as existing within the mind of God. With these new concepts, metaphysics unveiled an oneness for me that embraced everything. For the first time, I could understood. I could understand how, in laboratory experiments in America, Russia, and China, people were able to move objects without touching them. Before, I had thought. All such people use tricks from magic catalogs, and how instances of telepathy were as real and logical as any consequence of the law of gravity. Before, I had always thought of them as mere coincidences. All that I demanded from my trip to India was total proof that. Metaphysical phenomena were as real as I am imagined them to be. <clears throat> I also wanted to meet someone who understood the laws behind these phenomena and would be able to show me how they could be put to use. I was certain that I was certain that would enable me to create a balance and a harmonious existence for myself. Once these laws were proven to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, and I knew how to use them, then I was sure I would have integrated all the concepts I was learning. Then I was sure I would have integrated all the concepts I was learning. I sensed that the renowned Swami Muktananda held the key to my ultimate happiness. I arrived at his gate exhausted but enthusiastic and receptive, tired of ministers, rabbis, and priests who taught me mysteries of existence as a mundane subject with no more excitement than algebra, algebra, algebra. Algebra, 
and unmoved by professors whose knowledge of life seems to have come from textbooks. I was anxious to meet a man who really understood these esoteric principles of reality. I needed to see that with my own eyes a human being who had grasped, grasped the nature of life and used this knowledge as the basis of his daily routine. I had no way of knowing what Swami Muktananda would be like, but I was hoping to encounter a radiant, joyous being who exuded an aura of ultimate compassion and understanding, knowing all the answers, wielding all the power of God, commanding all the energy available to the One. The Muktananda I met that day was not at all the wizards of Oz I had expected him to be. To my eyes, he looked like a sickly old man with wrinkled flesh, crumpled on a straw mat, barking irate, barking irate commands at devoted followers who seemed ecstatic, ecstatic with his every croak. He couldn't even speak English. I was stunned. Surely all the knowing ones should be able to speak English, I thought. <laughs> it's funny. Exhausted and proud, these were the adjectives I used in my mind to describe this holy man who touched millions of people all over the world opening them to God-realization. The fact that he didn't live up to my picture of who I wanted him to be disenchanted, disenchanted me totally and clouded all the sparkle that others perceived in him. Indeed, it appeared to me that the only power he had was given to him by the devotion and the purity of his followers. I somehow survived the trek back to Bombay and left India bitter and sad. My disappointment is extinguished the light extinguished the light my hope had kindled. Returning to my life aboard ship uh, returning to my life aboard ship thought I giggled and danced as I performed the antics of Tolly, the crown magician. My heart was numb and my spirit crushed. Where was there left to go? A tailor Caldwell's party. I was deeply struck by the realization that I wasn't alone in my feelings of being lost and alienated. Beneath their affluence and prestige, and despite the experience of age, it seems that many of the guests were as lost as I was, and no more contented with symbols of success. I had searched around the world trying to discover even one human being 
who embodied the enlightenment I had believed to exist. Even the thought of Hilda and Ramdas seems to depress me. Even the thought of Hilda and Ramdas seems to depress me. It was all well and good for them to see so much beauty in life, but how was I going to reach that state of perception? Quite clearly, the answer was that I wouldn't. I was tired, confused, and so struggled. Strange, strangled, strangled by doubt that all I wanted to do was sleep to melt the iceberg of my life into a metaphysical sea. That was when I locked my cabin door and went to sleep for what I thought was the last time. Instead of return to oneness that I had hoped would be mine, I found myself a cripple in bed, the victim of a second botched attempt at suicide. Trying to make sense of who I was and what I was to do now that life had begun played such a seemingly cruel trick on me by forcing me to continue with it. How was I to act around my parents, those poor frustrated souls who lived, who loved me so? How could I face Hilda, who so optimistically set me on the path of discovery? What was the lesson in my being alive? Why was I being punished and for what crime? My only answers came in the form of tears and I cried for days. I had no idea if I would ever recover the use of my legs. They always syrupy fluids from decubitus, decubitus ulcers at the pit of which lay exposed bone. These holes caused me no pain, however, because my legs were paralyzed and free from all feeling. Several days after I had returned to my parents' home, Barry came up to my besides late one night and told me he had been in New York where Hilda was conducting prayer sessions for my full recovery. He entreated me to see her, but even as he said the words, he could see I was in no condition to be moved. I had attached my body in early April. I had attacked my body in early April, and to my surprise, I was able to hobble on crutches by mid-May. Hilda was relentless in her prayer treatments, and in June, with only a cane, I finally went to see her in Manhattan. The ugly sores were not yet completely healed, and portions of each leg were still insensitive to touch 
or pain. But there was no doubt that mending was in progress. Hilda shook her head as I hobbled through the door. She asked about my trip to India, and I complained that there had been no miracles. Hilda shook her head as I hobbled through the door. She asked about my trip to India, and I complained that there had been no miracles. She laughed, dummy, you still haven't learned a thing. I avoided her knowing. Compassionate eyes and start, stared at the floor. Look at me, she snapped. I complained, I compi compiled, I complied instantly. I, comp I complied instantly. Her eyes penetrated to the core of my being. You are looking for miracles, huh? Why don't you look in the mirror? Your life is a miracle. You should be dead. Every law of science says so. But you're here. And look at your legs. I interrupted. Sarcasm ringing in my voice. Yeah, look at them. Ingrate, she be bellowed. We've been working day and night healing those legs, and they will be healed. You want a miracle? You're so wrapped up in your models and misconceptions you couldn't recognize a miracle if it splattered you in your face. Here, look at this, she added, shoving her ring in front of her eyes. What do you see? She commanded. An answer. I looked at Hilda's ring and found myself drawn closer and closer to it, as if by a magnet. It was a gold ring with a polished black stone set squarely on its upper surface. Inside the stone, there appeared to be the face of a man. It was a negroid face with thick lips and a thick, flat nose. He was wearing glasses and had short, kinky hair. At first, he was still, but slowly the man began to move, and then he smiled. As a magician, I was familiar with trickery. As a magician, I was familiar with trickery holograms and other deceives devices of illusion but they imagine that but the but the image in the ring defied all the principles I knew. Can I examine it? I asked sheepishly sheepishly. Hilda removed the ring and tossed it to me for inspection. Now it seems to be an ordinary ring. The image was gone. What is it? Where is it from? I inquired with shock and curiosity. A real magician made that ring. Hilda chuckled. 
His name is Sai Baba. That's who you should have seen when you were in India. Oh, well, everything in its proper time, she said. Oh, well, everything in its proper time, she said simply as she put the ring back on her finger. She began caressing my head, and I was immediately reminded of the special love that my grandpa, grandmother, and I shared for each other. Hilda, I have so many unanswered questions. I began to cry. Asking the question is in itself the resistance to the answers. Huh? Asking the questions is in itself the resistance to the answers, Hilda replied. You must learn to meditate. The answers will come. Go home now. Come back when you can walk without the king. I said goodbye and with tiny shuffling steps, leaning on my cane, I walked out the door my brother held open for me. In the car on the way back to New Jersey, Barry amplified one of the things Hilda had mentioned to me just before we left. Hilda's path is meditation, she said. It can't be taught. It can be taught. It has to be caught. What does that mean? I asked. It's like this. You can't try to relax, he explained patiently. But even though you can't try to relax, you can put yourself into an environment conductive to relaxation. If you hang around people who are uptight, it's bound to make you uptight. Spend time with calm people, and soon you'll begin to, the, to be calmer, too. I didn't see what any of this had to do with meditation, and just as I was about to say so, he looked over at me and smiled. Breathe, he commanded, with a touch of Hilda's authority. It was only then I noticed that, in fact, I had hardly been breathing. How many years had I spent like this without realizing it, so tightly controlled and rigid that I would deprive myself to breathe? Is that why Barry was talking to me about up, upright, uptight people? Is that why Hilda was recommending that I catch meditation? Is that why Hilda was recommending that I catch meditation? I had been given my life back, and I knew Hilda had been right when she said it was a miracle. Slowly, I was beginning to see that the reason I had been given back my life was in order to change it. The question was, how?